This podcast celebrates the cultural connections between the UK and New York. My guest today is Claire Reichenbach, CEO of the James Beard Foundation, the US's preeminent culinary arts organization dedicated to celebrating, nurturing and honoring chefs and other leaders, making America's food culture more delicious, diverse and sustainable. Claire sets the overall strategic direction of the foundation, as well as overseeing a wide range of activities, including the prestigious James Beard Foundation Awards, as well as the nonprofit scholarship and impact programs. Before joining the foundation, Claire founded her own consulting company, supporting clients such as New York's Public Radio and Samsung. And prior to that, she worked at the BBC for over 10 years, both in the UK and the US where she was the Executive Vice President of Strategy and Business Development, a position she also held at AMC Networks. Her accolades include being named one of Cablefax's most powerful women in cable, multi-channel news's Women to Watch, and Management Today's 35 Women Under 35. For me, she is also the go-to woman if you need a restaurant recommendation, one of the most important people in anyone's book of contacts, Claire, welcome to uh, Brits and the Big Apple. Thank you so much, Hannah. What a delight to be with you here today. Uh, thank you for joining us. And it would be great if we could kick off by hearing a little bit more about your career journey and how you came to be at the James Beard Foundation. Yeah, thank you, Hannah. Thank you for reciting those accolades. Many of them feel like a long time ago now. Um, but yes, I started life. I left um, I left Oxford having read a wonderful degree, Human Sciences, which I adored. It's multidisciplinary, but it didn't naturally lend itself to any specific um, profession per se. Um, but I was lucky enough to start my career in the world of strategy consulting um, with Gemini Consulting as was. Um, and I think as a, a young, you know, just having graduated, it's a very privileged spot to be exposed to so many different industries. And it gave me a great business foundation in terms of having a confidence to walk into different companies and different organizations with a bit of a toolkit and a playbook, even if I didn't have um, depth of industry understanding. Um, and I love that, but it was quite grueling just from a, a life style perspective, constantly on a plane or a train, and so wanted to move in house and I'd always loved the media industry. Um, and as you said at the, the front, I, I was lucky enough to join um, the BBC. Um, I've always loved what that stood for creatively, the brand, the international influence that that has and um, being able to have a position that reconciled the creative and the commercial um, was deeply appealing. So um, yeah, I joined in the capacity of strategy, um, both within the public service and then uh, within the commercial arena, BBC Worldwide, as was, um, and was responsible for the, the global strategy. And the, um, you know, the understanding was if, if the organisation wanted to really be a serious player ex-UK, um, it really needed to double down in the States. Um, and so my boss at the time was said, that's great. Um, can you go and support our endeavours in New York? And I obviously leapt at the opportunity to do that. Um, and I was I came here 14, 15 years ago, ostensibly just for two years, but um, fell deeply in love with the place. And, and here I am. So, yes, my my launch pad into New York and the States was through the BBC. Wow. And it's it's interesting how many people uh, come on the podcast and say that they were only planning to be here for a couple of years and then they managed to stay. What what was it about New York that first attracted you? to come here and um, I guess what has kept you here for so long? Yes, yeah, so I think these are 
they sound a bit hackneyed now, but I think it, it is the, the cliche of the dynamism, the vibrancy, the can do, just the pace of this place, I find very energizing. I know it can feel enervating for some people, but um, I, I love it. it um, I love the, the rich diversity that this city holds in a very small landmass. Um, but, the, but the cultural uh, and um, commercial social diversity across all pieces is just um, so compelling to me. And I love going back to London, but I'm always very happy to return here. And I, I say at this point, I'm you know British by nature, but New Yorker by nurture. Um, and it's really got under my skin at this point. That's an excellent phrase. I think that's brilliant. Uh, and tell us about how you came to um, uh, the James Beard Foundation, because that feels like quite a jump from being in the BBC. What, what, what were the steps that took you there? It truly is. And in many ways, it was a kind of non-linear <laughs> career trajectory. Uh, but I had, um, as, you, as you said, Hannah, I'd started my own um, kind of strategy consulting operation, um, working for a number of media companies. And it was when I was... Um, in that capacity, I was actually headhunted for this role. So I, many people in the UK and, and some of your listeners may not be familiar with the James Beard Foundation. As you said, it's the preeminent nonprofit um, in the food world. It, it's for North America. It's um, it, People think it's like Michelin. It's actually, it, it, there is an awards component, but it's much more than that. Um, and it's very much a, a mission-based organization. And I've always, I've always loved food. I've loved cooking drinking, let's be fair, the world of restaurants, that has always been a passion of mine. And I could never really figure out how I could stitch that together with a job, especially kind of in media, short of going to work for something like the Food Network. Um, but I was lucky enough to get on the, the radar of the headhunters um, who were looking for someone who could um, bring that brand building and that commercial rigor and that strategic leadership to bear to an organization that was deeply steeped in culinary excellence. And in fact, you know, very lucky to work with a team who has that, um, that expertise and, um, and depth of knowledge in droves. So it was the hybrid vigor of bringing someone in who didn't come with that pedigree, but could really harness the organization to take it to the to the next level um, and for me it just appealed on so many levels one the food and the food and restaurant eating side of things but really also the um what the what the organization represents and it's trying to make a positive dent in the world through food and driving change through food um, and as you said our mission is really anchored um, in trying to promote um, and support a better food system one that has equity and sustainability at its very heart so we talk about reconciling you know the pleasure and the purpose so yes it's about deliciousness and and fine dining if you like or amazing dining events but is it all in pursuit and in service of a better food industry and in fact our our clarion call is good food for good uh, and we try to ensure that everything we do has those two components in balance that's really helpful and actually I was going to ask you to unpack a little bit more about what the foundation does and, and your vision for it which you've started to do but perhaps tell us a little bit more about what that actually looks like in practice and the kinds of things that you um, you lead indeed and I think it's quite useful that I'll be quick but just tell you the kind of the main points of evolution of the foundation so James Beard the eponymous James Beard the man um, was a prolific cookbook writer he wasn't a chef per se but he was a celebrant of chefs and a mentor and a coach and he was a very early proponent of seasonality and 
um, farm to table and the democratization of good food. And when much of America was looking to Europe for haute cuisine, he was saying, no, this was back in the 40s and 50s. He was saying, no, let's celebrate all things American, the heritage of American cuisine, but also the talent and the resource um, and the ingredients. And so he was really a shining light and very much in the vanguard of, of the, the, the culinary world in the States. He's, he's known as affectionately as America's first foodie. And when he died, Julia Childs um, and the great and the good of the culinary industry rallied and said, we really need to enshrine this man's legacy um, because he's been such an important figurehead for the, for the furtherment of the industry. And so they founded the foundation in the eighties with the objective of professionalizing the culinary arts and putting them on the same footing as the performing arts. And that's when we saw the coming to being of the awards, the Oscars of the food world, as it has been known. We're trying to make it more the, the Nobel Prize of the food world. And um, the James Beard House, which is where he worked and taught, and that's really been a performance space for chefs and then scholarships. And then the next wave of evolution was really about saying, well, we, we have this platform. How do we harness this for, as I said, to promote a better food industry um, and food, um, food world? And that was, we saw the introduction of the impact programs around women's leadership, around chef advocacy, around sustainability and around um, racial equity. And so the next evolution is taking, really putting those impact programs, not as an adjunct to the other work we do in, in gastronomy, but very center stage um, and, and taking that from the awards down. And we have just taken a year off with the awards to do a profound overhaul to essentially expand our definition of excellence. So culinary excellence remains absolutely core, but in and of itself is not enough. So we want to be anointing people who can demonstrate, yes, the food on the plate is superlative, but also the culture um, and the environment that they support and produce is one where all can thrive. So we've, um, we've expanded our, our definition of the standard. That's really helpful. And um, it, it, he was really quite pioneering, wasn't he? I mean, listening to you talk about, you know, the democratization of the industry, uh, you know, back in the 40s. I mean, that's really quite impressive stuff. And I think he had an English, did he have an English parent as well yes Hannah you're so right he was <laughs> he was born in Portland he was he was very he was very prescient I think if we take it for granted in terms of these high profile chefs and it's a scene as a career that is aspired to that is that is somewhat recent uh, back in the 40s and 50s it was if you told your parents you were going to be a chef there was you know an arched eyebrow um but yeah so James Beard was born in Portland to a British mother who um she was very much his food inspiration and he grew up on the proverbial you know maternal apron strings she had a she ran a hotel a boarding house called the Gladstone, which is a good nod to her British heritage. Um, but she was, um, food was incredibly important to her. And she was always at the market ensuring the highest quality and the most, the freshest, um, most in season ingredients. So that was the, that was where it came, you know, the DNA that ran through James came from there. And I know he spent time in Liverpool, um, uh, but he, I think he used the UK as more of a hub to visit uh, to visit the rest of Europe and was uh, a big francophile after his time there. And just thinking about the UK and the US and, and one of the things that I really like to do is just explore the, the similarities and differences between the, the industries. Uh, and 
from where you sit, what, what, what do they look like in the culinary world? And, and how does um, people's expectations or experiences or um, motivations around restaurants and you know, the profession differ here in New York versus in the UK? It's, I think there's great similarity, if I'm honest. I mean, when I was, the time I've spent in the UK, I was there more with my kind of media hat on rather than looking at it through a culinary prism. Um, but certainly as a consumer and seeing the role of restaurants and um, the importance they play in terms of communities and neighborhoods. There, and I think this has really been highlight, high lit again throughout COVID, just the social cohesion they bring that the proverbial um, meeting place where people can come for those important parts of their lives, whether it's celebrations or commiserations or first dates or mothers, you know, the rest on the local rest restaurant is such an important um, fulcrum for that. Um, and it is, and you see that, you know, universally. Um, I look at the restaurant scene in New York and in London, I see more commonality than difference. And also as an industry, it's very much um, an on-ramp into the workforce. For many people, I think it's like a third of people it, during their career paths at some point have worked in hospitality. So it's a very good entry point. And you see that again, both within the UK um, and the US. Uh, I think the responses have been different uh, through this crisis. It was, it was kind of heartening to see in the UK, there was a subsidized scheme to encourage people to eat out. I think um, here it's been more really having to lobby for this restaurant revitalization fund and really demonstrate the economic and social case to to government in terms of this is an industry that um, is a huge employer um, it represents three percent of gdp and although it comprises hundreds of thousands of disparate individual businesses in aggregate it's profoundly important and I think that has come to bear more so than ever and I, I sort of feel actually in the UK that that is better understood um, than here, but I think in general, the um, the industries look pretty similar. Mm. Yes, you're right, and 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 as you say, in the UK, um, I think it was called the Eat Out to Help Out scheme, right? Which the government subsidised, as you say, to encourage people to continue eating out in their local restaurants over COVID. And I was going to ask you about COVID because clearly it's placed such an unimaginable toll on the restaurant industry. Um, what what role has the James Beard Foundation been able to play throughout this process in terms yeah. of for um, for restaurants? Yeah, and it, you know this is an industry. So many industries have been profoundly hit. I think the restaurant industry singularly um, that you know the toll has been really brutal. Uh, if you think about, I mean, it's almost two years now, isn't it? But at the beginning, the mandated shutdowns like overnight. And then the whiplash of you can open, you can close, and here are the restrictions, and then here's what you need to spend to, for the safety components. It's just at every level, it has been um, a sustained challenge. And I think it, what it also exposed was the fragility of the economic model of restaurants, certainly, I think, probably more so here, actually, than in the UK, and recognizing that it's paying last month's bills with revenues generated today. When the lights were turned out, were switched off, it just... It just um, it just exposed, you know, people aren't sitting on big cash reserves and businesses, many went under pretty much overnight. So we recognized as a, uh, you know, uh, we are here to service the industry that is our community. 
we launched a campaign, you know, our, our mantra is good food for good. We opened it, we launched a campaign called Open for Good. And we marshaled all our resource and energy really to try to help restaurants get through this crisis. Um, we built a fund to issue emergency grants, um, gave away almost 5 million in emergency grants to small independent businesses. Um, we supported all the lobbying effort that resulted in the Restaurant Revitalization Fund, which helped help support that. And we provided just very pragmatic, tangible help on the ground, how to apply for a PPP loan, um, what are the safety protocols, with so much conflicting information, trying to synthesize that and give a, be a central repository for a lot of that to help people navigate their way through it. Um, it was something that we 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 did, and we, you know, we did over something like 100 webinars on just how to get through it all. And then the focus has been more so about how do we rebuild, and so we're not rebuilding in the same guise as before, given those vulnerabilities, economic, but also, you know, the, the pandemic um, shone a light on the, again, the inequities within the industry. Um, I think of some of those differences between the UK and the US. It's, this is a tip-based system predominantly, and the majority of people don't have healthcare. Very different um, complexion to, to the UK. And just the just the vulnerability of, of restaurant employees, which there are, you know, tens of millions, um, was really the, was thrown into very sharp relief. So as we think about the rebuild, we our attention now is on that. But again, just looking at this last wave, Hannah, you know, the industry is back in triage again. And there are these compounding challenges this time around of staff shortages. I mean, this is happening across the service industries, but um, really uh, very hard to reconstitute teams to the same degree. The cost of goods has gone up, the impact of inflation, the impact of supply chains. And then now this, again, this other wave of COVID and discomfort about being in, in closed, et cetera, et cetera. So it goes on. and. Um, this is a, a tenacious group of people, but my God, this has been sustained challenge for, for two years now. And, um, and at the beginning of the pandemic, I think the numbers we use are roughly about 500,000 independent restaurants in the US. Um, and the prognosis was that one in five, so 20% of restaurants probably wouldn't make it through. Um, we, uh, there hasn't been a definitive set of numbers, but the numbers I have seen have been at least 10% of restaurants have closed. And it will, it's to be seen actually just how many survived this winter. We did a poll with our industry um, members before Omicron hit, just saying, what's your confidence of making it through the winter? And only 50% uh, were confident they'd make it through. And that was before this wave. So um, to be seen, and I just, you know, any opportunity I get, and I'll use this platform too, if I may, is to really encourage diners and consumers to, you know, support your local restaurants. How do you do that? Order takeout if you're not comfortable eating and buy gift cards and then burn them with, <laughs> buy gift cards, give them out, you know, get drinks to deliver. And if you are dining, be good, be a good diner, be patient, recognize that menus are limited, that shut their staff short, they are short staffed um, and tip handsomely. Um, so I think it's, we all love our, our local restaurants um, and we do have some agency in supporting them get through this. Such an important point. And I remember when we had uh, Jess Shabbolt from right. yeah. the podcast, I was so impressed with uh, what she was saying about how they effectively had to reinvent their business on, you know, multiple different levels. So right. I think they previously uh, you know, um, 
offered people the ability to buy their olive oil and they went into merchandise as well. They've got absolutely lovely king blankets and, uh, you know, Christmas cakes and things. And, and, you know, just that kind of enterprising spirit, but also the pressure that that must bring. Uh, you know, it was both, you know, hugely impressive, but also so sad that they had to do that. And that was, you know, part of how they could get through it. We've seen immense innovation. I mean, it is not the spur that anyone would invite, but um, seeing the the uh, the experimentation, the innovation, and the diversification of revenues has been so impressive. And actually, people th th that diversification will sustain, as you say, people moving into retail for the first time for takeaway. Some of these, you know, the highest end fine dining people saying, how do I how do I reinvent my menu to so it can be boxed up and still be a phenomenal experience people moving into relief kitchens and supporting, just so many um, impressive uh, levers that have been pulled that that will, some will, 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 will sustain. But yeah, Jess and the King, the women at King are a fantastic, um, fantastic example of that tenacity. I was gonna talk to you about another topic that's at the front of everybody's minds, which is climate change. And uh, that feels like something that the restaurant industry is really kind of gripped and is running with, you know, the whole concept around sustainability and how you can make uh, the whole culinary experience sustainable. But I would love to get your views on, I guess, how you've seen the industry shift as that has become even more prominent in people's minds and, and what you think the outlook is in terms of how it could go further. Yes, and it's on it's on the macro and it's on the micro. Uh, and again, I think this has been something that is certainly within our community. It's one that's very close to their hearts um, because they are good citizens um, and and want to ensure that their operations uh, are not contributing to this. But also, there's an economic imperative. Um, and again, we're seeing we're seeing this with through COVID when economic the pressures are so high. You know, full use. This is something that the Beard Foundation has been supporting. Waste limitation, um, full use is really imperative. And that takes very creative menu design, using everything um, from, from start to finish, but also you know, how do you reinvent when you have leftovers? Um, and the, the whole, all the enterprises and initiatives around waste reduction, that starts with measurement. So locally at the restaurant level, measuring, monitoring, iterating. Um, but a lot of it goes upstream in terms of the, the agricultural level and restaurants, I think, certainly again within our community, um, are very work increasingly closely with their local suppliers. Again, when you think about these big homogenous supply chains have broken down, the, the dependence on local suppliers has increased. And so getting a better understanding of those practices um, and what the environmental impact is, I, I think is, is uh, at the fore. I think you're seeing a lot of trends that are increasingly plant forward, looking at protein alternatives. Um, and of course, there's this consumer demand perspective. So yes, it's good business from the bottom line, but it's also, um, you need to be responsive to what the consumer is requiring. And it's very gratifying to see that increasingly that is a part of the consideration set when people are eating out. Um, so we support all those different initiatives in terms of the events we do, the people we work with. Um, we have had, um, we actually have a, 
cookbook called Waste Not for the, for the conscientious consumer, um, how to minimize waste in your own kitchen. Um, we work with the company called Rethink whenever we do any of our events to make sure that we're recycling um, the food that is that is available for that, et cetera, et cetera. So again, I think it, it starts with the, the small consumer level initiatives that can be made all the way through to how do we work with um, the big you know, agricultural players to, to move the needle there. And something I found quite frustrating here in New York City, and maybe it's just a product of where I live in the city, is, is the kind of lack of being able to get rid of your food waste. Right. Because that's something that I feel like the UK has really got behind. And I know it's mainly at a local council level, but, you know, I have my, my little sort of cubby box that I had next to my food preparation area in my kitchen and I would be able to put it there and then I think it was twice a week it would get picked up whereas it doesn't feel like it's something here that has sort of caught on in that it's way. It's not as mainstream is it? No and it's one of the things so one of our initiatives is, um, is around chef advocacy recognizing that chefs have influence and voice and many of them are activist orientated and we have a program called Chef's Bootcamp for Policy and Change where we we train them up to be effective advocates um, and one of the policies that um, those groups have been lobbying for is is more local um, composting because you're exactly right it's just not in the mainstream here you've got to go out of your way and there are enough barriers to doing this as it is without making <laughs> so I think so many good people have got these burgeoning freezers full of vegetable peels and things and you need to you know trot down to Union Square whatever it's not made easy and I think there's so much more work that could be done there yeah and um, and this is now me just uh, rolling off my bugbears, but I also wonder whether there's something about uh, the, the the cost of buying meat alternatives at the moment. So, for example, if I want to go to my local supermarket and I want to buy some mints, but I don't want it to be you know meat mints, I want it to be a substitute. It's pretty much the same cost as it would be for me to buy meat mints, if not you know um, more so. And and. I'm not a vegetarian, but I do want to make conscious decisions and to eat less meat. And, mm -hmm. and I just wonder how much it's about incentivizing. And I know there's a huge business model that sits behind that particular example, but it's about how do you incentivize people to make those lifestyle choices, particularly where it's at the margins, you know, so for example, if I walk into Pret actually, I don't need to buy that meat sandwich for lunch. I could just buy a vegetarian sandwich. But, you know, it would be nice if the vegetarian sandwich was slightly cheaper so that actually incentivized me to make that choice. I don't know. Maybe I'm... Yes. Maybe I'm you know. <laughs> but many of these uh, meat alternatives are in... They're expensive to produce. Um, some of them, you know, take a lot of, uh, of different layers of processing, etc. And until you know the economies of scale, because the demand is a bit chicken and egg, or chicken and egg alternative, whatever. Um, the uh, you know it needs some probably some federal spur, to, as you say, to either level the playing field or to in incentivize. I mean, I think there are. They're also not all meats that are created equal. Um, and there are some, you know, meats that are very humanely raised. But again, I think often there is a there's a price tag to that as well. So um, there are lots of dimensions that go into this. And it definitely feels like it's moving in the right direction. I'm sure listening back over this interview, even in a year or two, I will say, well, actually, the demand, as you say, has increased and therefore the cost went down and, you know, there was more availability of of you know more i trust so i trust so it's gonna it's gonna take some cons real concerted effort but again i just just 
looking at menu shifts, you can certainly see that in terms of maybe not meat alternatives, but just the, the more vegetable forward plant forward plant based offerings, not you know, exclusively, but just as a direction of travel. I think it's very heartening to see that. And just picking up on um, your, um, your your point earlier about your program around chefs and advocacy, it would be great to hear a little bit more about the the work that you're doing on the social impact side. You know, your good food for good. The end of that sentence. Tell us a bit more about some of the work and the projects that you're um, you're leading. Yeah, so we um, we have a kind of whole whole suite of program. Right now, we have been undertaking um, a lot of regional research, um, looking at the industry, both in terms of uh, from a, a women's leadership perspective, but also from a, uh, a racial equity perspective to get to understand better the root causes of why do uh, women or people of color, who, who are the ones who are breaking through and getting to leadership positions um, and what have been the conditions of that? Uh, and then can come equally, what are, what are the barriers that, to prevent people from getting there and how can we help support them? Um, we, we've supported um, women leaders in culinary for a long time. It is, it's, as, a, as, a, as a woman, it's always galled me that, you know, women do so much of the cooking domestically and then in the professionalization of this, uh, women have been excluded and um, or have been disadvantaged. Uh, and so we have a program called um, Women's Entrepreneurial Leadership, which is in fact, um, one of the Jess's colleague at King is, is currently one of the um, participants in, that, in our uh, Women's Entrepreneurial Leadership course, which is like a condensed sort of MBA for women who um, own uh, a, a business within culinary but are looking to scale it. Uh, so we're really helping, we want to get more women at the business helm. The hypothesis being, if you have more women leaders that they will bring more women up and actually will produce um, environments and organizations where, uh, which are more conducive for, for everyone, frankly. So we do a lot in that space, a lot in terms of supporting women in their careers and mentorship and networking. Um, we're doing, we have um, similar programs for um, people of color. We have a legacy um, advisory program for, um, for BIPOC members of the culinary community to partner with them, partner up and coming talent with established talent who can, again, mentor, open doors, bring them to the table and help them um, carve, a, carve a path. Um, from the sustainability side, we have a program called Smart Catch, which is helping our restaurateurs um, work with sustainable seafood providers. And then we have this like uh, policy work, um, which, which cuts across all different elements of the food system, whether it's looking at the farm bill and SNAP, whether it's looking at antibiotics and food or food composting, as you say, a lot of the energy we've spent from a policy perspective of late has been on getting help and relief for the industry itself. Um, but we trust when we're through this, we can turn our attention again to those broader food um, food systems. So um, there's a lot, we're building out the programs in, 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 you know, for each of those impact pillars, but a lot of good work underway. That's a really impressive um, collection of programs. Thank you. I was going to finally ask you about your favorite restaurants, but I thought that given your role, that probably wasn't the most diplomatic question to ask. So I was going to ask you about your favorite meal, favorite <laughs> food that you like to eat. 
<laughs> yeah, the, the favorite restaurant one is tricky. It's like they're all God's children, slight answer there. <laughs> there and there is such a such a rich diversity to choose. Favorite meals. I mean, my goodness, there have been uh, you know so many wonderful meals at the moment. I'm trying to do this kind of January purge, so I've <laughs> tried to compensate for all my overindulgence of the last year. So I'm doing a lot of um, grain bowls and things that I would not naturally gravitate towards. Um, but that is, that's gratifying. But, you know, I think you can't beat uh, a really, a really well executed roast chicken. That's always my go-to kind of comfort food, get a really good organic chicken, cook it properly with some, with some local fresh veg. And I think that always warms the heart and soul. Lovely. Thank you. Claire Reichenbach, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on Brits and the Big Apple. Thank you so what a great pleasure. Thank you. I look forward to dining with you again soon, Hannah. You're listening to Brits in the Big Apple, brought to you by the British Consulate in New York. If you'd like to hear more about the work of the British Consulate, please follow us on Twitter or Instagram at UK in New York. Thank you for listening.